Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're delving into the UBS Wealth Management CIO's Q2 Outlook. The Outlook details some of the ways in which investors can look to manage the portfolio risks emanating from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and from high inflation, rising interest rates, and ongoing market volatility. While the range of potential outcomes is certainly very broad and the uncertainty high, the backdrop is unsettling. But that doesn't mean that investors can't take positive and proactive steps to position to best navigate the choppy waters ahead. We start with some insights from a good friend and regular guest on this programme, Kieran Ganesh. Kieran is strategist in the UBS Wealth Management CIO and the editor-in-chief of the Q2 Outlook. Kieran, thanks for being with us. Great to hear from you, as always. Set the scene for us, if you can. Investing against a backdrop of volatility and uncertainty is always a complex challenge, but it's kind of become a pretty familiar one over the last couple of years, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, I think the theme of investing with uncertainty is really an an evergreen in in modern um, financial markets, and we've consistently been surprised by what would be considered uh, left tail risks or extreme left tail risks that you know couldn't have been predicted um, as we entered the year and this year has been really no different with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine uh, with the very substantial increase we've seen in interest rate expectations with the persistent high levels of inflation and with the general high level of volatility and drawdown in markets um, investors have had a lot to contend with uh, in the first quarter of 2022. Yeah, so Kieran, then aside from repeating some of those mantras, which include things like, you know, remaining calm, uh, be open minded, what do investors have to do in order to manage those kinds of near term risks whilst making sure they are still effectively positioned for the the longer term? There's no sort of one size fits all solution, of course, but there are some key principles to keep front of mind. Yes, and I think that's the right way to break it down is to, to think about, well, first, how can I manage um, the risks which are associated with these different trends? And then how can I position uh, in a way that uh, can be aligned with some of the longer term trends which are uh, emanating from those. So to take an example, with the war in Ukraine, uh, we think that a way of hedging portfolios against some of the potential you know, negative effects of, of the war lasting you know, much longer than uh, or lasting for an extended period, you know, could be to include things like commodities or the US dollar um, or energy equities into portfolios because they would typically be expected to perform relatively well uh, in some of the downside scenarios for markets as, as relates to the war. But at the same time, we can also think about, well, what are some of the longer term trends which are going to come out of this? And we think that uh, we're going to enter something of an age of security where companies and governments are going to focus much more on stability and security even if it comes at the cost of efficiency and price. Uh, And we think that that's going to support uh, industries like renewables and green tech as as countries focus more on energy security. Uh, Companies who are providing agricultural yield enhancement solutions may benefit as companies and countries think about food security. Um, Cybersecurity solution providers might benefit as as, uh, companies and countries uh, think more about how to protect data and, and insulate economies from 
cyber attacks. So we think, you know, by positioning in a way where you're hedging portfolios against potential risks in the near term, but also positioning for longer term trends, then investors can navigate uh, some of the uncertainty that's out there. Yeah, and we're going to be speaking to Karim Sheriff in a minute about alternatives and the role that can play in, in diversification. But I did want to ask you, Kieran, a bit more about the high inflationary environment, higher interest rates as well. What are some of the key uh, things to bear in mind when it comes to managing those pressures, which are also at levels that perhaps we didn't expect even just a few short months ago? Yes, there's been a very big change in US interest rate expectations. And, and this is really important for all investors globally, because US interest rates you know, really set a, a benchmark for the valuation of most financial assets around the world. And since we've seen this big increase in interest rate expectations, we think there are different implications across asset classes. If we look within fixed income, for example, we've seen a you know, very poor performance from a lot of fixed rate uh, securities and fixed rate bonds. Investment grade bonds and, and government bonds have had among their worst first quarters or their worst quarters uh, on record. But we think that there are opportunities in floating rate securities. So we like things like US senior loans, which have floating rates. So as rates are increased, then the rate that you receive as an investor will increase as well. So we think that creates something of an opportunity. Um, within equity markets, we typically tend to see um, financials and value stocks perform quite well as rates are increased. And we've seen something of that trend again this time. So we think that's a good area to tilt toward to try and insulate from some of the potential risks of, of higher interest rates. And then we can also think in currency markets, there are some implications as well, um, that we've got a bit of a two-speed world in, some, in terms of some central banks increasing interest rates fairly quickly. And that would include uh, in the UK, the Bank of England, and in the US, the Federal Reserve. And whereas some other central banks are likely to be uh, much slower because they don't have such an inflation challenge. So places like Japan and, and the Bank of Japan or like Switzerland and the Swiss National Bank. So you know, we think that preferring the US dollar and the British pound relative to uh, currencies like the Swiss franc and the euro and the Japanese yen uh, also makes sense at this time. Now, volatility is still one of the watchwords. And you already alluded, Kieran, to this idea that, you know, Volatility can remain elevated, particularly, you know, if there's an extended or a, a much longer tail to the, the conflict in, in Ukraine, of course, as one example. And just remind us about how sustained periods of elevated volatility can be mitigated or, or better sort of planned for if investors stick to your sort of three, the traditional 3L strategy that we've talked about before, particularly when it comes to liquidity as something that can address volatility in a helpful way. Yes, and I think volatility is is you know often concerning for investors. If investors have different sources of income that they can use to fund their spending, then volatility doesn't need to be something to to worry about particularly because it's easy to just stay invested and see through the volatility and let uh, assets compound and appreciate over time while using your sources of income to fund your spending. You know, I think that's, that's relatively straightforward. Where it starts to get more complicated is where investors who perhaps are in retirement and they're reliant on their portfolios to fund their spending, um, then volatility can be problematic because you might need to sell assets in order to fund um, spending. Um, so we think to try and mitigate against this potential risk of being forced to sell at times when the market may be a liquid or maybe down quite substantially, it's important to build up a liquidity strategy. So we, we think about uh, holding back around two to five years of expected portfolio withdrawals in a liquidity strategy and keeping that invested in cash and short 
short-term bonds, which can be relied upon to retain their value, at least in the short term, and using that to fund near-term spending needs, whether that's on things like travel or purchasing a home or paying taxes. Um, and then that would allow the longer-term portfolio, the longevity portfolio, to stay focused on longer-term uh, appreciation. And we think by conceptualizing portfolios in this way and breaking it down into a liquidity portfolio, a longevity portfolio, and, and even a legacy portfolio, and we think that uh, investors can uh, navigate volatility more effectively and reduce the risk that they are forced to uh, sell into falling markets. Uh, now, you did mention in the context of equities earlier, Kieran, in a couple of areas, you talked about financials, value stocks. Just if, if investors are thinking, look, actually, in this kind of market environment, it's actually an opportunity to find some longer term value in in stocks. What do those look like? And I know that in the piece, there's some suggestions about investors who may be a bit underexposed to Chinese equities, for example. A good, uh, there's maybe an opportunity, but there are some also some thematics, some sectors that you think might be interesting in that context. Yes, so Chinese equities is, is certainly one area that we find interesting at the moment. We've had a very poor performance over the course of 2021 and early in 2022, and that's left uh, the Chinese equity market trading on quite cheap um, valuations. And if we look at the point of the cycle that China's in, it's one of the few markets globally where we are likely to see interest rate cuts at a time when we're seeing interest rate increases in other regions. So we think that should prove favourable um, for the Chinese equity market. We've also had some policy and announcements that suggest that they may be taking a slightly different tack on economic policy and perhaps uh, being a bit less harsh in terms of new technology regulations and new regulations on uh, overseas listings. We think that that may also uh, help, uh, help the Chinese market. But as you said, there's also some thematic opportunities out there. And we've been looking out for parts of the market which have sold off quite substantially as a result of some of the concerns we've had in the first quarter, but where we think that ultimately there's still a very strong secular growth story in place. So to take one example, many automation and robotics companies have seen quite sharp sell-offs in the first quarter of the year. But we think as we go forward in this environment of labour shortages and attempts to reduce the complexity of supply chains, and we think that automation and robotics will come back into favour. Smart mobility or the trend towards electric vehicles. Again, we've had some sell-offs in companies related to that theme. Um, but we think that theme is still very much consistent with countries trying to reduce their reliance uh, on fossil fuels in the longer term. So again, we think that that may be a potential area that comes into more focus for uh, investors over the course of the next uh, few years. Kieran Ganesh. Well, as mentioned a little earlier, we are going to shine a quick spotlight on alternatives, as there's a particular focus on this area in the Q2 Outlook piece. Karim Sheriff is strategist in the UBS Global Wealth Management CIO. Karim, diversification is always important, but I guess the need to diversify one's portfolio is put ever more sharply in focus, isn't it, in times of particular volatility like those we're living in right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right there. Diversification uh, is about spreading your risk, right? So investing all your capital into one stock or one bond carries more risk of failure than choosing a, a diverse mix of assets uh, that is designed to meet a certain goal or a certain uh, risk tolerance, right? And as investors, we really truly aim to make sure our portfolios combine different types of investments across stocks, bonds, commodities, and alternatives, but also within asset classes, we try to distribute across the various regions, styles, currencies, to make sure we, we are not overexposed to one specific factor. 
Well, so Karen, then given that backdrop, what kind of role can or should, I guess I should ask, alternatives play in that process? Well, alternatives can play different roles in the context of an asset allocation. You know, by accessing strategies that are unavailable to public investors, alternatives can, for instance, reduce dependence on traditional market drivers and and therefore potentially add differentiated uh, sources of returns by adding strategies that are also less directional or less dependent on, I would say, specific macro environments, investors can build more resilient portfolios, especially in the face of uh, recessionary pressures. Uh, and by allocating towards less liquid strategies, investors have the potential to, to not only earn an illiquidity premium, uh, but also improve portfolio's efficiency by, by improving the amount of return generated per, per unit of, of risk incurred. Well, Karen, maybe next you could just talk us through some of the different options available here. I know there are a few from hedge funds to private markets, direct real estate. Just give us a bit of an overview of some of the the different options available to investors. I would probably start with hedge funds, which, which are clearly um, a powerful tool in, in the current context of uh, uh, you know of uh, heightened volatility, and, and clearly these are tools that can help dampen the overall portfolio volatility. And this is an asset class that so far has been quite resilient to the environment since the beginning of the year, and certainly more so than, than traditional assets. Uh, and we see them as effective diversifiers, especially if uh, inflation fears drive increased stock uh, bond correlations. Uh, we see, for example, strategies such as relative value, uh, market neutral funds as uh, as good replacement, for example, to fixed income. Uh, we also see uh, multi-strategy funds and global micro funds, you know, uh, quite interesting broad portfolio diversification perspective. And we also see some niche credit strategies that can also generate less correlated yield uh, with limited duration risks. If you take, for example, private markets and especially private equity, you know, this is an asset class that can help you with enhancing return generation. Obviously, with, with exchange, in exchange of uh, a longer lockup period, private markets can, can offer a combination of uh, access to uh, various companies at various stages of their, of, of their growth cycle, as well as uh, potentially higher returns. And historically, that has been the case for investors who continue to invest through, through volatile periods. We also see, for example, uh, exposures to, to real assets uh, quite helpful to, to preserve real wealth over the, over the long term in an environment of high inflation. Uh, and that's certainly the case for direct real estate, which offer an overall stable an inflation index income stream, and we believe the return there are likely to be quite attractive, even if rising yields may dampen the growth in, in capital values. And lastly, I would also probably flag uh, direct lending strategies as an additional way to, to provide enhanced income opportunities in excess of public markets with uh, the additional benefits of less inflation and interest rate sensitivity. Karim Sheriff. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.